Hello and welcome to The Curator on Monocle 24 with me, Markus Hippi. Over the next 60 minutes, we'll be bringing you some of the very best interviews and reports from the past week of coverage on Monocle 24 with highlights from our studios here at Midori House and from around the world. This week, we meet the Scottish author Andrew O'Hagan to talk about his coming-of-age novel, Mayflies. Part of it for me was that suddenly you could admit to the love affairs that you had with your friends. They were actually platonic love affairs that you thought about them, you worried Mm -hmm. about them, you shared day and night with them and you never forgot them. And in what sense is that not a love affair? Plus, David de Rothschild, the explorer and entrepreneur behind The Lost Explorer, an award-winning mezcal brand, discusses why mezcal had nothing to do with the brand he was aiming to create. And I remember sipping this mezcal and going, oh, that's interesting, that's different, that's not what I was expecting. It's smoky and it's full of flavours and it coats your mouth and warms your body. It's like much more akin to a whiskey. And for me, I was like, oh, okay. That, to me, feels like if an explorer was to drink a drink, it would be a mezcal. All that and much, much more over the next hour here on The Curator with me, Marcus Hippi. We begin this week's show by celebrating the return of the Monocle Daily. Every weekday at 1800 London time you can hear our take on the news and enjoy sharp reporting on the biggest stories. With the return of the Monocle Daily we also saw the debut of a new segment called On This Day. And right there you've already figured out the concept. On Tuesday's edition of the show we looked back on the publication of a novel which you probably know pretty well, even if you never read it. Early reviews were enthusiastic. The story is brilliantly constructed and told, approved The Guardian. His finest work of fiction, declared time. Neither critic was wrong, but neither critic nor George Orwell himself could have imagined that the book published on June 8th, 1949, would prove to be the most influential novel of the 20th century, or would possess a resonance echoing well into the 21st. Yes, that was a clock striking 13. We, unlike many who have sought to deploy 1984 in the service of their arguments, have actually read it. Nineteen eighty four was not Orwell's first satire of totalitarianism. In 1945's Animal Farm, Orwell had recast Stalin's Soviet Union in the barnyard to bleakly comic effect. <laughs> But there were no laughs in 1984. It depicted Britain as a brutalised dystopia, its population under perpetual surveillance, not merely in what they said and did, but what they thought. A key theme of 1984 was the way that language can be deployed not as a means of expressing thought, but as a barricade to it. The idea behind Newspeak, the official dialect of Airstrip 1, was that it would suppress dissent, or thought crime, by abolishing the means to articulate it, to others or to oneself. 
It has become commonplace to cite 1984 as a cautionary prophecy, although not in those totalitarian states whose rulers appear to have rather missed the point and interpreted the book as an instruction manual. 미 합중국 대통령은 이에 예를 표시하면서 조미 사이의 선의의 대화가 진행되는 동안 and it is certainly the case that 1984 contains considerable and doubtless eternal wisdom on the dynamics of power and how it can, if unconstrained, become an apparatus incapable of and uninterested in doing anything but perpetuating itself. Power is not a means. It is an end. In our world, there will only be triumph and self-abasement. Everything else we shall destroy. While 1984 added many phrases to our language, doublethink, thought police, two and two equaling five, among many others, it was also the book that made an adjective of its author's name. Orwellian has come to evoke the abolition, threatened, imagined or actual, of privacy and liberty. Orwell's depiction of a high-tech panopticon which allows no secrets to be kept was perspicacious indeed for a writer who could not have seen a computer, but his great misjudgment was to assume that a plurality of his fellow humans shared his tastes for modesty, frugality and rectitude. Orwell believed that people had to be terrorised into complete compliance. He did not consider the possibility that, when the opportunity presented itself, we would eagerly reveal to Big Brother more than he could possibly want to know. 1984 was George Orwell's last book. He was already stricken with tuberculosis when it was published, and he died seven months later, aged 46. It is obviously impossible to know what Orwell would have made of the ways in which 1984 would be interpreted and appropriated, but it is pretty easy to imagine that he would have been horrified by many, not least by a global game show phenomenon in which attention seekers from all over Eurasia, East Asia and Oceania positively volunteered to be incarnated as Winston Smith. Monocle's contributing editor Andrew Miller there for Tuesday's instalment of the Monocle Daily. Staying in the literary world now for our next highlight. On Monocle and Culture this week, Robert Bound met the Scottish author Andrew O'Hagan to discuss his coming-of-age novel Mayflies, about a group of young men in the 1980s obsessed with music and politics as they head off on a pilgrimage to Manchester for a gig. It's a story about the romance of male friendship, and here Andrew and Rob talk about just that. I think everybody has, if they think about it, a moment. It can take a bit of sort of winkling out, but everybody has a moment that was, as it were, the pinnacle of their youth. Yeah. Of course, we don't recognise it at the time. It's just another Saturday night. Yeah. You know, you're you're full of banter, full of common destiny, full of a sense of 
you know, desperation for the next pint. Yeah. You know, did that girl look at me? Oh my God, <laughs> shut up. You know, and all of that energy, I think, uh, seems so sort of whatever at the time, but looking back, and it's one of the sort of expenses uh, and delights yeah. of, of growing older, is you can look back and almost pinpoint the moment when your youth and your group think was at its height. And for me, that was that trip to Manchester in July 1986 that is the backbone of the book. Those lads were in tune. You know, they were at their height with each other. They spoke almost a private language. They were delighted with the whole business of existence for one moment. And that was uh, the core of the book for me. It's very easy to fall in love with these young men. They are, two of them particularly seem to have a, an exceptionally close bond. Obviously, this is Jimmy, your narrator, and Tully, who's the sort of focus of the book. And it's a great, well, I, I guess it's a great love story. It's a great book about the ro- the great romance of friendship. You describe it perfectly, to my mind. I mean, we too often shy away from the notion of what a love affair is mm. in this country. But in 2021, I think we've gloriously arrived at the moment where those old paternalistic notions of, oh, yeah, yeah, he's my friend, but I wouldn't dare, you know, hug him or anything like that. You know, my father's generation were kind of permanently petrified by the notion of sort of uh, intimacy with other men. Whereas even straight men, you know, and certainly gay men, I mean, the whole culture has flooded our lives delightfully. And part of it for me was that suddenly you could admit to the love affairs that you had With your friends, they weren't just oh he's my pal. Gruffly he said, <laughs> "You know, he's all right. Yeah, he's all right, I suppose." <laughs> if you push me, um, but it, they were actually platonic love affairs that you thought about them, you worried mm. about them, you shared day and night with them, and you never forgot them. Yeah. You know, and in what sense is that not a love affair? Yeah, you know? it's wonderful, and and the, the looking out for each other. Your narrator Jimmy is, and he ends up being a novelist, a writer yeah. and a novelist um, and, and moving down um, from from Glasgow to, to London. He's a great noticer of things, but then it, then in, in, it transpires in, in all the electric conversations that this group of mates have that he's great and he's generous in, in, in um, allotting the clever things that everybody else says to those people. He doesn't say, and then I thought this funny thing. There's a lot of gr- cracking dialogue. I think it's, it was accurate in my memory. I mean, mm. of course, I mean... I mean, I wouldn't wish to deny it for a second. This is a very autobiographical book. And the energy that it draws on is the energy of memory. Yes, imagination is all over it, and my freedoms as a writer are all over it. But the core material and characters are from life. And I can tell you without hesitation that those boys were like that. They were the cleverest people I ever met. Mm. They were all pretty, you know, poorly educated, really. I mean, uh, very few of them at that stage had gone to university. I, I mean, the main character was on the brink of going, and he was the first in a family of four boys to have gone. It was a working-class environment, but the cleverness was native, instinctive, drawn from popular culture. What we had in common is that we were all great fans of things. Yeah. You know, obsessed with English (laughs) kitchen sink drama, you know, obsessed (laughs) with punk, absolutely, you know, slaves to, you know, surprising things like, you know, the architecture of uh, Rennie McIntosh. You know, all of us could speak for hours in the pub about that, and quite distinctively as well, if I can say. You know, these boys were... Uh, sort of autodidactic devils in the pub who sort of knew their territory. I mean, they could have talked about The Clash and what every single sleeve note and every single yeah. album was. I mean, they had their specialisms and 
some people have said to me, did they really speak that way? I mean, w- w- is it possible that they were all sort of on politics and uh, popular culture in such a kind of on-point way? I said, I'm afraid to tell you they were. If anything, I brought it down a bit. <laughs> but novel. there is this wonderful competitive, this the banter. It's Banter's been given a bad name, maybe, since... <laughs> since the year of Top God, Gear and everything. Thank God you, know you mean? said that. It's been given a bad name. And this, this, it was wonderful reading again, reading Mayflies again and kind of slotting back into this world of this on point. All of your, all of, all of your protagonists, or all, all of your characters, this group of mates seem like they're sort of sociable solipsists. You know what yeah. I mean? They're, they're, they're yeah. all, in their own little world, as you say, they're these autodidacts, but they're yeah. so generous with each other, laughing at each other's jokes, joshing with each other, making it, wondering where it'll go next. It's a game of tennis constantly where they're, they're constantly. trying to have a rally rather than win the match. Absolutely. They weren't competitive, my mates. You hear these descriptions of typical young male behaviour, like endlessly competitive and sexually avaricious and mm. you know undermining each other. I never saw that. I mean, we hardly had a girlfriend between us. That's true. But that was our fault. <laughs> you had each other. We had each other. <laughs> and we had our banter. And the banter was not sexist, racist, misogynistic, hate-filled yeah. rubbish. You know, you hear these things talked about. And I'm sure, I mean, I, 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 I'm absolutely certain that there are problems with certain men in drink when they get together. But we weren't like that. You know, in fact, we were constantly introducing new avenues of, you know, political engagement with each other, you know, through the daftness and the banter and the silly talk. Mm. Um, but in the solipsism, as you rightly say, you know, we're all really deeply interested in ourselves <laughs> yeah. in some way that time But generous that enough away. to be interested in each other, right? Yeah. yeah I return think so. the ball. Well, you learned everything from your mates. You looked at your mates rather than looking in the mirror. I mean, we all dressed the same anyway and we had the same hair. Yeah. So if you wanted to see what you looked like, you just looked at your best mate. <laughs> The Scottish author Andrew O'Hagan in a conversation with Monocle's Robert Bound earlier this week. Still to come here on The Curator, we meet the explorer and entrepreneur David Rothschild. We touch down in Lisbon to learn about a magazine devoted to the culture of tea. And we head to Uruguay's capital for a tall story. Stay tuned. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems, and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. You are with the Curator, our weekly highlight show here on Monocle 24, and I am Marcus Hippie. We turn next to this week's edition of The Entrepreneurs, Monocle's show dedicated to the world of business. David Rothschild is a conservationist and explorer, and the entrepreneur behind The Lost Explorer, an award-winning mezcal brand he created to show how production of the famed Mexican spirit could be done in a more sustainable way. Known for For his adventures, the Rothschild joined the show's host, Daniel Bage, to discuss why Mezcal had nothing to do with the brand he was aiming to create. 
As an explorer, I guess the key essence and the key thread to all of us is being curious. And I think we're all born to explore, but often what happens is that curiosity gets taught out of you, right? You're told, don't touch this, don't try that, don't taste that, stop this. And I mean, sadly, I look at myself now, I have to stop myself. When I see my daughter, who's 19 months at that peak curiosity age where the brain and the neurons are exploding, everything's new, everything's exciting. And it's, you know, like, oh, no, no, don't touch that because, it, you know, and you're like, no, you know what, let her do that. She's an explorer right now. She's at the peak of her exploration. And I think for me, that is what is imbued in the essence of the lost explorer. And Mescal was kind of, it was sipped along a journey, I should say. It was something that started when I first was in San Francisco back in 2007, where I was working on a project to build a boat out of plastic bottles to sail across the Pacific. And I remember one evening going off with a friend to a little speakeasy and somehow on the bar you know we talk chatting and he's like what's that and someone's like, oh it's mescal and i was like what's that is that the one with the worm in it i was that classic sort of person who said that exact thing oh it's the one with the worm if you eat the worm don't you hallucinate i was like oh amazing that's a two for one if that's true but i was like fascinated by it. i was like i want to try that and i remember sipping this mescal and going oh that's interesting. That's different. That's not what I was expecting. It's smoky and it's full of flavors and it coats your mouth and warms your body. It's like much more akin to a whiskey. And I just sort of became fascinated by it and started drinking it and enjoying it socially and being based a lot up and down the West Coast of America in proximity to Mexico, going down to Mexico. And there was a real mystique around it. You know, you go into a little bar and someone will pull out something which is not labeled and it's in a bottle that looks like it's just been you know, plucked out of the palenque and it's, it's battered and there's a little cork in there or someone sort of winks to someone else and the back cupboard opens and they pull out these little bottles and, you know, sometimes you don't know if you're drinking mezcal or icea or some other agave-based concoction that they've been working on and it just has all these little stories that attach to it that were so rich and so vibrant and for me, I was like, oh, okay, that to me feels like if an explorer was to drink a drink, it would be a mezcal. And so when I started The Lost Explorer, which was a wider array of products, we were doing clothing, we were doing skincare, we were doing furniture, you know, this true lifestyle experience. The first product that we ever launched was mezcal. And it was really because what I wanted to say to our, our audience that we were trying to build was like, before we do anything, let's sit down, have a sip of mezcal and share stories. And it kind of evokes that sort of romance of storytelling and, and the sort of the pace of how it's made. And, you know, when we think about tequila, at least when I was growing up, it was all about, you know, you take a shot, you put some salt in your hand, you knock it back. It was all slam and bam, you know, it was quick and rapid and sort of intense and, oh, all right. You know, it was serving a purpose, which was usually just to get drunk. Whereas with mezcal, it was sophisticated and slow and, and curious and nuanced and took you on an adventure. And I was like, that to me feels like the right product to launch with. And I quickly realized through that experience and my lack of experience, if I'm honest, about the spirits industry, I was like, oh, okay. So there is a whole world of knowledge that I'm completely devoid of <laughs> to actually be able to sell this legally. So in some way I became my own sort of like bootleg bar for one with my friends where, you know, I had this beautiful mezcal made and wasn't really selling it. I was just sharing it with friends. And when people would come to our studio, we'd sit down and have mezcal and share stories. So it's kind of been this incredible journey. And then through the last three or four years of like looking at the market, looking at what's happening, looking at how good the product was. And 
really always when I would sit before Tino, he said to me, I want to be recognized as the number one mescalero in the world. I really want to build this goal and build this goal and get to produce the best mescal, right? The best of the best. And, you know, we sort of looked at each other and I said, well, let's try that challenge. Let's try and make the best mescal. And the only way you can make the best mescal is work within the rhythm of nature because mescal is intrinsically so connected to the agave and to the plant. There's so much process that, you know, makes making this spirit actually probably one of the most complicated, you know, of all the spirits to make for a number of reasons which we can get into. But then it sort of kicked in again. And I was like, okay, he's right. There's something very special here. I could spin this out and build this into its own identity with its own team who knew what they were doing, which is probably quite important because the product is incredible. It's an exquisitely made and, and beautifully considered and, and everything you'd expect. And, and then you taste it and you're like, wow, that's incredible. And I, I'm not just saying that because I make it or, you know, I'm part of it. I'm saying it because it really truly is. I mean, we should really be getting drunk right now. We should be drinking and sipping. And, and actually, you should have cracked the scent bottle at the same time as me. That's what we should be doing. We'll leave that for the next time. The British adventurer David Rothschild in conversation with our very own Daniel Beige for the latest edition of The Entrepreneurs. From mescal to something a little more sobering next here on The Curator, it's a known fact that here in Britain we love our tea and tea drinking has become a part of day-to-day life. But some might say that we are only scratching the surface of a very rich and fascinating culture. At least that's what Martin Boracic, founder and editor of 80 Degrees magazine, a print publication all about tea, is saying. Now in its sixth edition, 80 degrees delves into the world of tea, its history, the different cultures that embrace the drink, the producers behind the herb and even the ceramics you use when drinking it, in absorbing narrative tales from around the world. Our Lisbon correspondent Gaia Lutz met up with Martin over a cuppa to find out more. Martin, before we delve into um, your magazine 80 Degrees, can I just ask you what kind of tea are we drinking? So we're drinking a black tea from Nepal from the Himalayas. Very, very interesting. And the reason we're drinking tea and the reason I'm asking you this, obviously, is because you've launched a couple of years ago a magazine all about tea. Can you tell me a little bit about that journey and and why you decided to launch this magazine about tea? Yes, so three years ago I moved from London to Lisbon, to Portugal. And, you know, it was a perfect opportunity for me to see if I wanted to continue in my career in advertising or try something different, uh, something perhaps more creative. And at the time, you know, tea was my passion, but it was really just very, you know, low-key passion for me. But I also like magazines. And at the time, I noticed that there was this new wave of um, print publications, you know, made very high quality paper, great illustrations and photos, and I couldn't find one about tea. So I thought, why not try? And four months later, issue one was ready. And tell me, and I know it's a pretty much a one-man show, this magazine. How do you get all these, these people and access to these, to these freelancers from everywhere in the world to, to write about tea? Did you find the interest was, was very big with tea, with these people wanting to write these stories? Yes, the tea community is very open and very inclusive and people who like tea like to talk about tea. 
and there is you know a lot of knowledge out there, a lot of experience so coming across people who have stories to share is not difficult uh, really uh, whether it's interviews or people people write themselves so from the beginning this was not really an issue the issue was to decide what should go in the magazine and how how i wanted to position it and what kind of stories to tell but uh, you know however you decide you you can always find people who are willing to and happy to talk about tea but tell me a bit about that positioning because it's obviously this is not so for our listeners that are not seeing the magazine 80 degrees is not an industry magazine about tea it's a very much a, a magazine that praises storytelling, illustration, beautiful photographs. Every article really takes you on a journey to a different place. Tell me a little bit about what you wanted to achieve with this, this new way of exploring tea culture. Mm. Like you said, it's not really an industry magazine. It's not uh, full of numbers and uh, uh, theory uh, behind tea. It's, it's more of a lifestyle piece. So I, I wanted to make something beautiful that you can hold in your hands and you know slow down and read something on physical paper while you have your cup of tea because it really goes well together. And so that you're not online, that you are not distracted by notifications and all the digital mess that happens. But also I wanted to tell stories that can take people on a journey, that can show the story of tea through the lens of the people behind the behind tea and behind the rituals and so that people can go on a journey and experience these stories you know almost as if they were there but not quite at least through the through the page of the magazine so i have here issue six and you know i've been through the magazine and you know you take us on journeys to turkey to china in the ming dynasty if i'm if i'm not mistaken to all sorts of different places can you tell me a little bit about either in this issue or another issue one particular story that caught your attention that perhaps listeners will find surprising about the, the that connects back to tea. Mm. There is a particular one about a Japanese philosophy or, or craft, if you want, called kintsugi, which means that you know in the in in the West, I'm comparing with the West because I'm a Westerner. If we break something like a cup or a bowl, we most often just discard it and throw it away. Whereas in Japan, there is this, this notion, this philosophy that if something breaks, it's not the end of the journey. They uh, prefer to pick up the pieces, glue them together, you know, add some varnish or some gold to showcase that the, the piece was broken, you know, they don't hide it. And now for them, the, the piece gains new meaning and a new lease of life and it becomes that much more valuable because it has gone through something, but it's still here. And I find it fascinating, you know, this is not specifically about tea, but it's part of the very wide and rich culture of tea. And that's the beauty, beauty of, the, of the topic is that it brings all these different philosophies and ideas and angles on life that all fit together perfectly through tea. So tell me a little bit about the audiences and the reception of the magazine, because now you're stocked in many, many countries. Were there any surprising countries that you found that you have lots of readers, that people are interested? Is there an age group? I don't know if you have access to this data that is more interested in tea. What were some of the, the reception you've been getting from people? So the magazine fortunately has been very popular since issue one. Loads of people, I know I received messages from many, many people saying this is exactly what I've been hoping for and it wasn't around, but now there is, so they're very happy, obviously tea drinkers. There is a very strong audience in the UK, I guess for obvious reasons. In America, which was surprising to me, there is a lot of, lot of uh, enthusiasm in America. 
people who uh, love and you know specialize in drinking very specific very niche teas that you know I even hadn't heard of so that's that's very nice and also you know I'm based in Portugal and it's a very coffee focused country the tea culture is very underdeveloped here but there is a lot of reader there are a lot of readers and a lot of enthusiasm for it so that kind of tells me that hopefully you know the culture will also evolve to something more sophisticated and people will discover tea through the magazine yes because i have to warn readers the reason we're doing this in your home is because we couldn't find a place with perhaps you know an appropriate menu of teas that we could go to here in lisbon and just finally can i ask you about your tea enthusiasm how many times a day do you drink tea do you have an absolute favorite you know tell me a little bit about your consumption habits because you i mean you did a whole magazine about it <laughs> that's so. true and i drink a lot of tea and i used to drink a lot of tea even before i started the magazine for me, it's it's you know in the morning you have black tea with breakfast, then you have something green, then you go to an oolong, and you know you end the day on something different. I I have a lot of tea at home, uh, obviously through travels because of the magazine. Um, before the pandemic, I managed to accumulate huge quantities of tea. Every time you travel to a country, you have to bring as much as much of it as you can, and now I just have to make my way through all the all the stock of it all uh, to not let it expire. So there is a lot of tea drunk <laughs> every day for me. <laughs> Martin Boracic, founder and editor of 80 Degrees magazine, speaking to Monaco's Lisbon correspondent Gaia Lutz for last weekend's edition of The Stack. Rounding off our culinary hat-trick now as our next highlight comes from the latest episode of Food Neighbourhoods. This week, Ed Smith, the author of the new cookbook Crave, shares a simple yet delicious recipe. My name is Ed Smith. I'm a food writer and a cookbook author, the author of Crave, recipes arranged by flavour to suit your mood and appetite. And the recipe I'm going to talk you through now is almost not a recipe. It's more just a suggestion of an assembly of delicious ingredients. And that is fresh mango with dried chili, lime and salt. And the background to this is it's the kind of thing that I would like to have when I'm craving chili and heat so much that I'm still craving that chili and heat at the end of a meal or as a snack during part of the day. And this is based on memories of walking around Mexico, having bags of mango or papaya or pineapple, all three in one, beautifully fresh, so juicy, but also with the option of sprinkling something called tagging, which is like a dehydrated salt, lime and chili condiment, which you can get now more easily, certainly in, in the UK than it was. But this is really simply mango with fresh lime, salt, and then some dried chili flakes. Find yourself a plump, ripe mango, cut the cheeks off it, which is the thicker part along the edge of the stone or the seed. And then cut those in half and then take the skin off. So you've got as thick a segments as you can of the mango. Add a pinch of flaky sea salt, the kind of molten salt crystals. Good squeeze of lime. And then a teaspoon, sprinkle over a teaspoon of dried chilli flakes. Some chilli flakes that are fruity and quite mild. Things like Aleppo pepper, gochugaru, which is Korean, and or uh, Calabrian chilli flakes. They, you can really taste that it's peppery as well as hot. And when all those things come together and you just use your fingers to eat the mango, you've got an amazing snack that ends up with a buzzy chilli hit on your lips and also the fruitiness of the pepper, the mango, the lime. It's just a delicious thing. The author and food writer Ed Smith there for this week's edition of Food Neighbourhoods. Still to come here on the Curator, we head to Uruguay's capital for a tall story and we stay closer to home as we explore the London Design Biennale. Stay tuned. 
UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. You are with the curator of our weekly highlights show here on Monocle 24 and I am Marcus Hippie. With populations in Latin America continuing to grow and evolve, the ways in which countries in the region use their public space is changing too. For this week's episode of Tall Stories, we head to Montevideo, Uruguay's capital, to see how the city's plazas act as the glue that holds their communities together. Monocle's Latin America affairs correspondent Lucinda Elliott explains more. One of the greatest challenges for Latin American cities in recent decades has been how to reconfigure public space when their urban populations have mushroomed and social structures are constantly shifting. Often they're set out like an archipelago of disconnected neighbourhoods, rich versus poor, high up versus low down, with endless last-minute cobbled-together buildings that offer little in the way of social cohesion or sense of community. But here is where the traditional plaza or town square, is playing a vital role in planning up and down the continent, with the enormous potential to improve daily lives and reduce crime, measured by the quality of these open spaces. Montevideo, the capital of Uruguay, is the youngest of South America's cities, founded in 1724 by a Spanish soldier, Bruno Mauricio de Zavala. On moving at the start of this year, I noticed how plazas that were brought over from Spain by Zavala and I admit, the one dedicated to him in the old town is by far a favourite, are really utilised. This, I'm told, is thanks to major clean-up projects financed by the city council. Each one comes with a small basketball court or five-a-side football pitch, fountains, benches, with places to take shade and sip tea, smooth walls and pistas to roller skate or graffiti to your youthful heart's content. Others come with chess tables, solar panels and slots to charge your phone. Young adults and teenagers meet up at dusk. There's even an initiative to get kids away from screens and back out playing in the plaza, sponsored by local football clubs. So how has Montevideo got things so right? First, with just under 1.5 million people, it does have a demographic advantage when it comes to public space, currently counting a generous 10 metres squared per resident. The waterfront promenade, known as the Rambler, that hugs 20 kilometres of coastline separating Uruguay from Argentina, is backed by four urban parks of Rodó, Bache, Del Prado and Rivera. A closer look actually reveals a sequence of central squares with an intricate pattern of tree-lined streets, geometric boulevards and avenues. At one point, from the 1930s through to 60s, there was even an Olympic-sized public swimming pool with diving boards that jutted out from the Rambler into the river. But it wasn't until the end of the 1990s that the bigger, modern-day Montevideo really thought hard about how the capital had changed and to plan better. Thousands had been forced out to what became the suburbs, previously just the country's rural interior, with no architectural foresight. These unplanned industrial districts multiplied they were miles away from the benefits of the Rambler and wide open space. Then, driven by more favourable economic conditions and a new socialist government in the early 2000s, 
Squares were commissioned or rearranged, ambitiously positioned as new destinations, ones of beauty that strongly encouraged people to coexist in the areas they lived and worked, no matter their age or social standing. One of the first and possibly best examples of the plans carried out by the Montevideo City Council is Liber Seregni, an area of 16,000 square metres in the heart of a cramped and heavily transited part of town called Cordon. It used to be an abandoned tram station, later taken over by uninspiring warehouses where the homeless used to shelter. We never went there as children, one local resident told me. In 2008, the space was emptied and set out as a spectacular urban square with overhead lighting that would allow for plenty of people to get together at any time of day and test these ambitious plans. Its success was the springboard for dozens of squares in the periphery and more marginal parts of Montevideo. Plaza Casavalle, inaugurated in 2013, is in one of the neighbourhoods with the highest poverty rates in the country. Plaza Tres Ombúes, named after a tree native to the region on the outskirts of the city, was built simultaneously alongside six other squares, designed with smaller neighbourhood meeting points at road intersections or between council estates. Crime rates, levels of delinquency and petty theft have all come down in these districts. The latest, Plaza Las Pioneras, opened last year near Parliament. The site was also an old train station. This June, Mayor Cristina Cosse, the first woman to govern the Uruguayan capital, will launch Culture by Neighbourhood. The initiative will bring concerts, screenings and theatre performances out from indoor venues to the squares, a way to support the artistic community during the pandemic. All shows will be exempt from municipal tax. Uruguay has experienced an unexpected spike in coronavirus cases this year, having handled the outbreak masterfully in 2020 without a lockdown. Higher caseloads are driven in part by the new variant from neighbouring Brazil, forcing many activities to close, but not the open plaza. It seems that like the famous Italian piazza and the Portuguese pracinha, the humble square has solidified her role as a place that really does bring Uruguayans together, just as the turn of the century plan first envisioned. Monocle's Latin America Affairs correspondent Lucinda Elliott there with this week's edition of Tall Stories. You are with the curator of our weekly highlight show here on Monocle 24 and I am Marcus Hippie. For the latest instalment of Monocle on Design, the team paid a visit to this year's London Design Biennale held at Somerset House. For this highlight, we head out to the venue's River Terrace where visitors will find the people of African Diaspora Pavilion. The installation named The Sale is the first of a series of three architectural follies by the American-Nigerian designer Ini Archibong. Herein shares his inspiration and why the pavilion serves as an act of monumentalism and site for gathering. Ini began by introducing the sale and what visitors will encounter upon visiting. Sitting on top of stone bases, we have concentric arches designed from catenary curves of different degrees and magnitude vibrating concentrically from the base upward to a height of about eight meters and between the arches we have sail fabric holding it all together and it's a it's an artistic representation of uh, I guess of a metaphor with the aluminum arches representing the resonating vibrant voices of the people of the African diaspora 
overtaking a sale and pushing us into our future. All of this started with my approach to the topic of resonance, which is the theme for the Biennale. And, you know, in order to address that, I, I do what I sometimes do with my art pieces. I, I create a narrative, and this narrative was mythological story that is particular to the African diaspora, being that there is no, I guess, unified lineage of the African diaspora to have a mythology to come out of. There is the freedom to create one from scratch. So in this mythology, there's a magical shell that represents, you know, the ability to make a rallying call to the rest of the diaspora to bring together council to engage in discussing the topics relevant to the diaspora in that moment. The impetus for whatever mythological story that I'm going to create, it starts first with what the goal or the intention of the project is, right? So once it's established that this is about black voices, this is about the diaspora, this is, should be something that tells a story that makes it feel like there's a through line from the past and the ancient all the way through into the future. The actual storytelling is just imagination and creativity. There's symbology and there's different things that people automatically associate certain ideas with that get to be brought into play that serve as inspirations. There's also the fact that, you know, I've spent my entire life reading comic books reading mythology, being obsessed with superheroes, watching movies, manga, you know, all of this stuff, it makes it so that it's, it's not that difficult to, to come up with an imaginative, you know, story about, um, about heroic, you know, adventure. Um, I think projects like this and, and the project that I did for the Dallas Museum of Art, both those projects deal with this mythology and deal with these stories that are important in order to put the project into context and for people to understand, I guess, the, the spiritual significance of what I'm trying to purvey. The sale, you know, is representative of, of the mode of travel during the time that most of the dispersion happened whether it was Africans that were sailing themselves to foreign lands or it's the transatlantic slave trade, those both represent the dispersion of African people to the rest of the world. Being in London, being in Somerset House and the, I guess, the history that we have in this place, in this location, in this country, um, it makes it that the sale was the relevant uh, piece to bring here because it speaks toward the past that the United Kingdom has and their contribution to the dispersion of Africans through the transatlantic slave trade, as well as the fact that it's the home of so many of the members of the diaspora that should be carrying this thing into the future. This is the first of three, the sale. The next one, the wave, is coming in in New York. All three of them will be together in Miami in December.
New York. The Wave Gate is, you know, a, it's a freestanding sculpture again that is made up of, I guess you could say, concentric resonating arches meant to represent the resonating sounds of the voices of the people of the diaspora. And as such, New York, for me, holds a special place in in my story and in the history of the people of the diaspora as far as spreading the black voices to all corners of the globe through um, the art form of hip hop. You know, for me, that's, it's a foundational part of my creativity and um, I can see exactly how the spreading of our black voices took on a new dimension after the birth of hip hop. So we celebrate that in New York. And then Miami, we're bringing all three of these things together on the shores, on the water. And yeah, I hope, I hope that we can take that opportunity to celebrate the uh, Afro-Latin Caribbean uh, people of the diaspora and what they've brought to a place like Miami and to the world. I've never executed anything of this scale. I'm learning as I go. You know, I studied, I studied architecture, I studied like all the things that allowed me to have the tools to conceive of and to design these things, but I've never built architectural follies of this scale. You know, this is the first time that I've stood underneath one of my creations, right? The largest things that I'd been making before were, you know, chairs, tables, things of that nature. The thing that drew me to the concept of the folly is, is that, you know, this is an exercise in monumentalism. This is about placemaking through monuments. So the folly being not necessarily the piece of architecture, but the gathering place and the structure underneath which certain events and things can happen made it, you know, the appropriate approach to take. I think that when you talk about the African diaspora, it's important to recognize that the African diaspora doesn't have that many monuments in the places where the African diaspora occupies that represent us. You know, whether it's in London or Paris or throughout the US, the most we might have might be a monument to a person whose ideas the establishment has deemed okay enough to erect a monument for but very few things we have out there that are abstract in nature that represent a concept or idea that can move into the future in a way that it stands for something that is just about us and stands in a place where we would feel comfortable to then occupy that we might not feel so comfortable to occupy otherwise. So in that sense, the folly was the most logical thing for me to create as opposed to a tent. It didn't make sense for me to, to take a nationalistic approach to this brief. I also think that it says something about the diaspora. I think that there are commonalities between people that are from the largest continent on the planet that are so spread out. One of those commonalities is, is inclusiveness rather than separation. I think that most would tell you that, you know, people of African descent are inviting, you know, that 
I think that the inclusionary aspect of what it means to be part of the diaspora makes it make sense that we've done this. And it's not a slight or a knock on on anything that is nation-based because there have been many contributions, you know, that are based on groups that come together under a flag. So, you know, it, it doesn't diminish that at all and it's, it's not a negation of, of the value of that. I do hope to have more opportunities to work at this scale. I think that monuments are an important thing and I think that monuments are uh, I don't want to say a political thing, but I think that monuments make a statement about place and about where people belong, what people have contributed. To me, those aren't political things, but they can and have been politicized. But I think that it'll be important that those of us that have the skill set to create monuments that can have meaning for our people are doing that. So I do hope that I'll be doing more at this scale in the near future. My thanks to Ini Archibong, their designer of the People of African Diaspora Pavilion. He was speaking to Maylee Evans. The London Design Biennale runs until the 27th of June at Somerset House. And finally to Venice, where this year themes of diversity and climate change dominated the city's annual architecture biennale. Over at the Italian Pavilion, which is focused on the theme of resilience, artist and architect Niccolo Casas has teamed up with environmental organisation Pali for the Oceans that is helping pioneer a material using recovered ocean plastic. The result is a 3D printed sculpture called Plasticity, and it's makers think it can both stimulate debate and help change the way we build for the future. Monaco's Europe editor at large, Ed Stocker, spoke to the people behind the project from Venice. The Italian pavilion at the Venice Architecture Biennale. Always the biggest space, as you'd expect from the host nation, and with a message that needs to be bold. This year, the theme of resilience. Or as artist and architect Nicolo Casas puts it. So how we can react and how we can manage difficulties in a sort of collaborative way. Casas has teamed up with collaborators to create a 3.6 metre abstract sculpture that shifts colours under the spotlights from white to blue. What we wanted is uh, to create a symbol that could uh, raise awareness on the problems of oceans and on sustainability and on uh, the ethical problem uh, of living together human beings and uh, marine life. So we created this architectural installation that is created with partly ocean plastic. It's a really peculiar material because it comes from uh, intercepted in uh, recycled plastic, intercepted from uh, the ocean, from uh, remote island, beaches and so on and that partly for the ocean transforms and creates this cutting-edge material that can be employed uh, within the design uh, industry. Together with uh, Nagami, we had the possibility to 
employ this material within new technologies, so using robotic fabrication and additive manufacturing, so creating an art piece, an architectural piece that is perhaps the biggest in terms of size, also in terms of shape, complexity, that can be manufactured in uh, this moment of using this material and these uh, technologies that is uh, in show here in, uh, in Venice. So if you think about the name of uh, my installation, plasticity is almost a synonym of resilience because plasticity is uh, the quality of a material to react to external stimulus and uh, in this way acquires new qualities and new uh, characteristics. The idea of togetherness was uh, really, really important and connected with the idea again of plasticity, of resilience, that is again, we start from a problem, in my case was uh, the problem of the oceans and we try to react and transform this problem in an opportunity. In my case, again, it's an art piece that becomes a, a way to create a project initiative that starts from the ocean and does exist for the oceans. Because again, eventually we, we want to raise awareness on the problem, uh, problems of the oceans. And we also want to activate a series of uh, you know, actions for ocean protection and uh, plastic ocean cleaning. Your installation, how do you see it being applied in real-world practices for architects? How can other architects take the learning from this and apply it to, I guess, the theme of this year's Biennale? The idea is to show that in a plastic way, since, uh, again, the name is plasticity, how intercepted and recycled plastic can acquire volumetric shapes and become architectural forms and architectural spaces. So what of those architectural spaces? What does the 3D printing firm behind the artwork make of it all? Could printing help transform the architecture industry? My name is Manuel Jimena Garcia. I'm the CEO of Nagami. Nagami is a 3D printing startup. Uh, we work with robots to uh, materialize large-scale pieces with recycled plastics. So 3D printing has been mainly limited to a desktop size for quite a while, and now we're making the jump to create larger structures. So I think uh, completing this circle from uh, recycling materials to print architectural elements and then work on solutions for putting them together in a very quick and efficient time is really redefining the way we understand architecture. Uh, we're now working in uh, larger pieces uh, such as uh, a nine meter diameter pavilion and some very large ceilings and interior solutions that make use of recycled plastic to really innovate in form and technology by integrating uh, furniture, integrating layers that are normally separated in built architecture and that's uh, really creating spaces that were unconceivable before this technology. Tell me how important it is being here at the Venice Biennale after so much time of not being able to get together and its importance, I guess, for sharing ideas and perhaps even influencing other architects. Well, the Venice Biennale has always been the event for experimental architecture. For the last uh, few years, we've been always uh, meeting here with colleagues that have a very similar aim as we have, 
really trying to evolve architecture not only formally but also making it more efficient making it more sustainable introducing the use of automation we see examples here that we couldn't see anywhere else and the conversation that we have amongst our peers is so fluently productive that i do consider these events essential for the evolution of our research essential for the evolution of research you don't get much more of a ringing endorsement for the Biennale. A chance to think about weighty issues such as ocean plastics and the environment and building better for the future. It really does feel good to be together again. Monaco's Europe editor at large, Ed Stocker, there earlier this week. And that's all we've got time for on this week's edition of The Curator. The show was produced by Sam Impey and presented by me, Marcus Hippi. Join us again next week to hear some of the very best of the programmes here on Monocle 24. And thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>